Okay, as I try to get everything ready to go here, we are going to do communion today, and that's going to be the focus of our topic. We are going to be in Mark chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Mark 14. A few things I want to say first. Um, I have heard rumors that Opie came home with the boys and the girls championship in basketball, which is pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. They had won football earlier. We have some Opie people that go to 12, so just wanted to give them a shout out. I think we can, we can kind of give them an applause. That's pretty cool. Some people who go to our church were on those teams, or at least one of them I know. Um, also, there's a fellow, I don't know, is Tanner in here? Tanner goes to 12, goes to Emporia State. Tanner became an All-American at the National Indoor Championships last week, so that's pretty cool. So, good, can we get good job, Tanner? Uh, Easter's coming up. We have on the back postcards on the way out if you'd grab one. We really want to challenge you. This isn't just for you to put on your fridge as a reminder Easter's coming because my guess is you know Easter's coming. But you, my guess is also we all know somebody who, who needs Jesus, somebody who maybe was churched and are unchurched, and this is a chance to invite them. Um, I just talked to somebody this week who said our family growing up, we were the Christmas Easter family, Okay. There's always people like that who don't know the Lord, and if they would just get an invitation. So grab a card, you know, you can mail it to them, you can give it to them, but challenge you to think of somebody that you can invite to have here for Easter. Um, it'll be a chance for them to hear the gospel, and I'm pretty excited about that. Um, a couple other things. Speaking of giving boxes, this week in the reading, did you notice that it said that uh, that Jesus was, was sitting or standing by the giving box and he was watching people and then the widow came and gave her might if you read that story and I'm like uh, that would have felt interesting if I'm going in to give and Jesus is like by the giving box watching me so I've decided that I mean we follow Jesus that's what we're trying to do that starting next Sunday I'm going to sit back by the giving box every Sunday and watch as you all come in <laughs> no, I just thought, boy, that'd be really uncomfortable if you were giving and Jesus is standing there. Um, just just a, how my brain works. Uh, a couple of things. If you were here last week when I talked about the Gospels as eyewitness documents, again, the thing, talk to somebody from ESU again this week who had read the book that, about all these other Gospels and they were like really, it, can, it got them confused. Um, if you're struggling with that or if you ever have a conversation, I also have a piece of paper back there called the Gospel of Judas. And when people talk about these, they never tell you the total reality of it. And if, if, if last week that pushed a button with you or something, you can grab one of those. One more thing that's back there. We start Luke this week. Diagrams and understanding what the author is about and what he's doing helps me as I read through a gospel, as I read through any book. So Luke uh, is great if you've been like, boy, Matthew and Mark had a lot of the same stuff. Luke uh, has 90% unique in his prologue and in his large middle section, 60% of what you're going to read is unique to Luke. Um, but I challenge you, even as you read stories and you're like, this is the third time I've read this, remember these are all different eyewitness accounts and Luke is the only one who, he gathered eyewitness accounts and wrote a document, um, his gospel. But I just really encourage you as you're reading the story, don't think I've read this before because each gospel has unique details. And so just read it with an eye, like for what are the new things that this that Luke's saying that, that Matthew or Mark didn't say. I also want to challenge you, um, I mentioned it last week briefly, but somebody who was talking to me about reading the scripture and sometimes finding it dry and not wanting to be that way, and number one, it's going to be that way sometimes. That's what the spiritual life is like. Remember, we undulate. It's just natural. But one thing I challenge them is whenever I, 
open the, the New Testament for my reading as I will ask God, I'll say, I want, I want to see one thing today that's beautiful about Jesus in here. One thing that's beautiful that really attracts me. And so I'm also reading for how he's speaking to me, but at the end of each one, I'm like, where do I find Jesus beautiful? And I will actually talk to him about that. So that's a way I recommended this person. They said it's helped their Bible reading to, to do that. So I just throw that out. Luke was written by a Gentile to a Gentile. He collected eyewitness evidence very thoroughly. And his gospel, gospel is really about how Jesus is the Savior of all of humanity. And I'll let you grab that and look into it. So, we turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse 12. Um, like I've been doing, I really love looking at what the other Gospels say. I'm going to throw in occasionally something Matthew or Luke add that to me is important. But in, Matthew, in Mark, chapter 14, verse 12... It says this, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. Interestingly, interestingly, most scholars think that the upper room was John Mark's house, that it was the house owned by his mother and his father. We think that because two places in Acts talk about the upper room, and one of them tells us that it was the mother, the woman who owned it was John Mark's mother. Um, so this is probably his home. Um, and probably he helped make the preparations, and they would have had servants who would have been people serving the meal and helping while the other sat, and there's, there's a good chance that John Mark was actually here during this event. Okay, so in verse uh, 18, so the disciples left, went to the city, and they found things just as John had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And I'm going to skip down to verse 22. Before I do, I want to say, uh, something that Luke adds in Luke twenty two fifteen, where he said, Jesus said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've eagerly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. And again, there's that suffering theme, which we've seen in the Gospels. Every time he says it, they're like, what? Why does he keep talking about this? What is he talking about? He brings it up again before this meal. So in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Say, take it. Matthew adds an eat, take and eat. This is my body. Luke adds, given for you, do this in remembrance of me. So in verse 23, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, that by the way, that is the Greek word eucharisteo, and if you listen, you'll hear the word eucharist in that, that's where that comes from. So he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And Matthew adds, he says, drink from this, all of you, and then Marx continues, and they drank from it. Then in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Luke adds, the new covenant of my blood, the new covenant, which is significant, and Matthew adds, it is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, he said. And then Paul adds an interesting thing in 1 Corinthians, 10, 1 Corinthians 11 where he has received a tradition from eyewitnesses who were there that Jesus also said this time, do this, whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me, that he said the remembrance both times. 
And then verse 25, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And this is the word of the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I could do a lot with this text, but I really want to focus on communion. Um, If you remember back in February, we talked about baptism. And the reason I'm doing that is I really want us to be crystal clear on what the Word of God says about both of those things, because I think a lot of times we have a general idea of what they are, but we don't understand them deeply. And so I feel like it's important that we really define what these things are. So I'd done baptism the week before we had that, and now we're going to, I want to talk about communion. This first part's a little bit of review, but there are going to be people here who weren't there then. Um, Like other Protestants, we believe Jesus instituted two ordinances for his church, I heard that word for a long time, and until a little over a month ago, if you'd asked me, why is it called an ordinance, I would have said, I don't know. But when I studied, it made sense. An ordinance is a public regulation, it's an authoritative law, it's a decree or a command. So they're called ordinances because Jesus commanded that we do these two things, baptism and communion. I'm in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, a command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it is commanded that we baptize people who are new followers. And then in Luke 19, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this, a command in remembrance of me. So these two things are both commanded, instituted by Jesus. That's why they're called ordinances. And the reason we practice them isn't just that, these two and only these two, is because these two and only these two were also celebrated by the early church, and these two and only these two were written about, expounded upon in the epistles. Um, In seminary, I had a friend from a Mennonite background, and they practiced three ordinances, communion, baptism, and foot washing. Jesus does talk about foot washing in John, but um, it's never mentioned in Acts, and it's not expounded upon in epistles. And so that's why for us, we say we're only focusing on the two, only on the two. Um, So again, why these two? What's what's the point of these two things? Um, Several reasons. I want to hit a big one, and then I want to get more into a biblical basis for it. Um, the number one, I said this with baptism, God created us as embodied beings. We are, we are spirits and bodies, a unity of the two, and we need physical, visible things that we can see, that we can taste, that we can touch, smell, tangible things, like ceremonies and celebrations. Um, I quoted the root of material last time. I'm going to quote it again. It's some, new, some stuff that hopefully some of you will do next fall in a small group. It's very good. They said this, celebrations are important. They mark transitions, accomplishments, milestones in people's lives. We have ceremonies when people get married, when they graduate, when they have birthdays. The reason we have these ceremonies isn't for the ceremonies themselves. It's because we're celebrating an event or memorable time and we're honoring someone's life. And so baptism and communion are our two public ceremonies, our two public celebrations. And I want to go a step further than I did with baptism. Because um, God, I think, not only created us with this need for physical things like this and celebrations, but He created us with the need to mark things with meals, that He designed us that way. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, anniversaries, important holidays, we all mark those things with meals. And meals aren't just for eating food, right? That's, it's more than that. There's other things that are going on in the context of that. Um, eating meals is an important part of, I think, how God designed us. Our daughter Ariel, her birthday was just Friday. We had a meal with some dear friends Friday, right, to celebrate. And it's just not food. It's to celebrate a life. And then her life's so important. We did another meal yesterday 
when Karen was there. And who knows, we may do one today for Thursday. We may do multiple meals for Ariel's birthday. But we do those things. And that's why in the Old Testament, God instituted seven feasts. And those things were not just seven celebrations, but they all had meals as a component. So this idea of, of meals is really important to God because he designed us that way. And I think he knows that, that when we put a meal in a context of a ceremony, that it, it embeds important things in us. It kind of marks us. And that's why in Exodus 13, 9, he said of Passover, the, the meal for the old covenant, he says, this annual feast will be a visible sign to you like a mark branded on your hand or on your forehead. So these, these things we do like this, he designed it that they mark us, that they're significant. So I want to hone in on communion. Uh, a few just general things. It's called the Last Supper, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, whichever group you're from. There's actually biblical reason for all of these. I could show you um, Paul, three of them, mentions in 1 Corinthians. I call it communion, and I always have, and it's probably because I didn't grow up in church, but the first church where I started going after I became a believer, my guess is that's what they called it, and what you hear is kind of what you tend to call it. I don't think it matters what we call it, um, but it is significant, and it's important, and I want to talk about that. So why, why this bread? Why this bread? And why this cup? Why the wine? What's, what's the significance of that? Uh, and I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I want to explain. And to do that, I want to go to the Old Testament, and I did this with baptism, but I want to remind you that our God is a covenant-making God. And anytime He enters a personal relationship with somebody, He enters into a covenant relationship. And if I were to define a covenant, it's a sacred agreement with oaths and obligations, which entered into by two or more parties, and it is often confirmed by a visible sign, and it's confirmed frequently by a corresponding meal. Let me give you an example of how covenants or agreements have signs and meals. Um, in the business world, and I'm not in that world, but frequently if, you, if there's a really big business deal somebody makes, they'll do a handshake afterwards. And the handshake in our culture is a sign of like, I'm committing to this, I'm serious about this, I'm not going to go back on my word. It's a visible sign. And then maybe they'll go to Applebee's afterwards, especially if it's a big business deal. And you'll have a meal together. Um, that's just part of what happens with that. Weddings are that way, right? I talked about with baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and that rings are the sign of a wedding covenant. They don't make you married, but they show people that you are married. And weddings not only have the sign, but they always have the meal of the covenant, right? After the wedding, you always have the reception, and you have the cake and the meal afterwards. It's, it's so common. In the old covenant, it was that way, and that's how God designed it. God gave them a sign of the old covenant, and that was circumcision that he gave to Abraham. Um, and something I still find humorous about that to this very day is when God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm giving you. I think if I was Abraham, I would have said, well, Noah had a flood. I mean, no, I'm sorry, Noah had a rainbow. Noah had a rainbow. Could I, could I have a rainbow instead of, or could I, could I have a unicorn maybe? I don't know. Could it be something that my wife and I both can share, like Noah and his wife shared? But anyways, it was circumcision. And then God gave a covenant meal for the old covenant, and it was the Passover meal, which is what we see Jesus having in this text. Um, and then the new covenant's the same. There is a sign of the new covenant, and that's baptism, which we did a few weeks ago. That's the sign of the new covenant. And we have a covenant meal, a meal of the agreement, and it's the Lord's Supper. And that's why Mark 14, I chose this text, and to me why it's so significant. Because it references three times in that text. I think in verses 12, 14, and 16, that this was a Passover meal. That was really significant. 
for Jewish people, that Passover meal was huge. Oh, there's some cute pictures. I always like cute pictures. Um, the Passover meal was huge. And I don't know if you know the story, but the Israelites were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God was promised to set them free. Nine different plagues had come upon Egypt, and each time Pharaoh would not set them free, and then the tenth plague was going to be the death of the firstborn son. But God, in His grace and His mercy, made a provision that a person's family's firstborn son didn't have to die. If anybody, Israelite or an Egyptian, if anybody would sacrifice a lamb, a Passover lamb it would be called, if they would paint the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and above the door, and then they would have this meal, they would take the, the lamb and cook it, and they would have this meal. But if they would do that, that when the death angel came, it didn't matter who it was, if they had done that, the death angel when they saw the blood in the door, would pass over that home and the firstborn would not die. But if they came to a home without the blood over the door, the firstborn would die. And that happened to Pharaoh. And after that, to his son. And after that, he finally let the Jewish people go. So it was through that sacrifice of a Passover lamb, through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, that there was salvation in whatever households did that. There was salvation from the death for the firstborn. The firstborn would not die. There was freedom from slavery to the Egyptians that God promised to set them, that through that he would set them free from Egypt finally. And then the birth of a nation. They would go to Mount Sinai where um, I can show you sometime in the future, culturally that was like a wedding ceremony thing that God was having with his new bride and they be, it was the birth of a nation and they became his people. And here's what Exodus says, two places about Passover and how important it was to the Jewish people. In Exodus 12, 14, it says, this is a day to remember, to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. And then in Exodus 13, 9, it says, this annual festival will be a visible sign to you, a visible sign like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord, that with a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. And so that Passover meal was their meal of remembrance of how God had delivered them. It was their meal of remembrance. And so we too have a meal of remembrance. And that's what's been going on in this text in Mark 14 when Jesus is having this Passover meal, probably the third time he's had this with them. And they're going to do the normal thing. And at some point in the future, I'm going to show you what that whole Passover meal looked like because there were so many profound things in that meal that actually pointed to the Messiah. But I don't, I'm not going to do that this morning. They would have had four cups of wine. There just was a lot going on. But here, it's, it's the normal Passover. They're coming in their mind to celebrate the liberation of Israel from Egypt 1,500 years before. It's what they did every year. That's their sitting there. That's the whole point. And as they start going through the meal and doing the things they normally did, Jesus holds up the bread, and they know what he's going to say, what they always say about the bread related to Passover. And instead of saying what they always say, Jesus says, this is my body that's given to you given for you. This is my body that's given for you. Now, remember, the whole time we're reading the Gospels, they never understood what was going on with him, right, his followers. Every time he talked about, I'm going to die in Jerusalem, they would rebuke him, and they never got it. Even up till his death, they never understood. And here he is again talking about this idea of suffering. And then he says, this is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. That's not what this cup meant. It was the cup of redemption it meant their redemption from Egypt, and he takes it and says, this is, the, this is the new covenant, which they've never heard that before, the new covenant in my blood that's going to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm telling you, their heads are spinning because they have never heard these words before in their life. 
Um, and so doing what Jesus was doing is he was taking this meal of remembrance from the old covenant. He's creating a new covenant and he's creating a new meal and he's radically altering the meaning of it. Um, he was telling them that they would later understand after his resurrection that he was now the ultimate Passover lamb. There wouldn't be a sacrifice of lambs. I think I read a quarter of a million lambs sacrificed in Jerusalem every year at Passover. A quarter of a million. That that's done. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's just, I'm going to do this one time. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God made Christ who never knew sin to become a sin offering so that we may be right with God. So he's altering the meaning of this whole thing. And here's what he's changing it to. He's creating a mill of remembrance for the new covenant. Through the sacrifice of himself, the Passover lamb, we now have salvation from death, all of us, not just firstborn, but all of us, and not from physical death, but from spiritual death, from second death. That when I die, I don't have to spend eternity separated from him. Much more profound than the Passover represented. And I get freedom from slavery to sin and Satan. To them, it was political freedom. But for me, it's freedom from sin and Satan. And then I am born into the family of God and become a member of God's family through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Same concepts, totally profound new meaning. So just as the blood of a sacrificial animal sealed the covenant God made with Israel... At Passover, so the blood of Jesus sealed the new covenant that God makes with his new people, the church, at the cross. And as you can see, um, Jesus is just taking that Passover, radically altering the meaning of it, and establishing a new covenant. And so now for us, the new people of God, the center event in history for us, it's not being liberated from Egypt, which it was for them. The central event for us has changed. And it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That becomes the center of history for the new people of God. He's changed the whole thing. And so communion now has become our covenant meal. Baptism is our covenant sign. Communion is our covenant meal. And by the way, something interesting, the early church, we know, practiced this as a meal. We know from Acts, we know from 1 Corinthians and Jude, where he calls it a love feast, that the believers would gather in homes weekly, regularly, and part of their gathering together was to have a meal, and they would always conclude the meal with, um, with the breaking of the bread and the giving of this. So it was celebrated in a, in a meal for a long time in the early church. We, it's hard to do that in here, right? And so we've simplified it. Um, these are actual drawings they've taken from the catacombs um, in Rome of pictures of the love feast that the believers would have back then. So, as I've looked at communion, it's our, it is our meal of remembrance. This week, as I was like pouring through the New Testament, the texts, and thinking about this, I found to me four purposes for this, four purposes, and I want to share those. So, the first one is this. God gave us this for humbly remembering, and we know that from Luke 21, 19, where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance. Baptism is my public declaration of acceptance, that I've accepted Jesus' death for me. Communion is a public memorial of remembrance of Jesus' death. So when we come to this table, it's a memorial of remembrance. A guy named Ian Pitt Watson has said, it's, there's a difference between recalling information and remembering. He said, recalling is just I'm bringing information to my mind. Remembering is I'm trying to delve deeply into it. I'm trying to meditate, think about it. So we're not called to just be like, oh, right, Jesus died 
but it's like he died for me, and we reflect on what that meant, and that he gave all for me. So it, it's a remembering. And again, that's what those Old Testament feasts were all about. They retold the story of God and their liberation. This, if I did this whole meal with you, you would see the story of that whole liberation from Egypt in it. Um, and again, I think this is my third time to read this, but I'm going to do it if you don't mind. Exodus 13, 9, this annual festival will be a visible sign to you. It's like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you, let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord with a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. And Jesus is saying, remember me and remember that with a strong hand when you do this, remember that with a strong hand, God rescued you, saved you from your sin through Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're reenacting with this, uh, with Jesus' death. Um, when we do, in a minute I'm going to show you this, but when we break the bread, when we, when we drink this cup, that we're reenacting His death on our behalf. And so this is our meal of remembrance. I found a quote by a guy named Steve Brown that I really like. He said, the world drinks to forget. We drink to remember. We drink to remember. The second purpose I found in Scripture is not only humbling and remembering, but powerfully uniting. Powerfully uniting. If I were to show you the text in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about communion, five times in that text, he says, when we come together. Five times. When we come together. 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 This idea of unity to Paul is really important when it comes to communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, he says this, because there is one loaf who represents one Savior, we who are many are one body because we share one loaf. And so Paul is saying this coming together around this table is to be something that demonstrates and powerfully unites us. But sadly, the Corinthians weren't doing that. He says of them in chapter 11, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. There are divisions among you. And I just want you guys to know that if, if we come to this table centered around Jesus, and if there's divisions in the body, or if a person is the source of division in the body, I want you to know that those two things are totally non-sequitur. They don't go together. Does that make sense? They don't go together. To be a divided or a source of division and coming to the table, those things don't even belong together. And so in this, I'm symbolically enacting not only that I have fellowship with God through Jesus on the cross, but that I have fellowship with his people, especially with this local body. You guys have heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, right? It's about family. And that's what this community, that's what we're supposed to be like. The blood is thicker than water, that we center around Jesus. We're desiring to become a biblical community of kingdom people, and kingdom people means Jesus is the focus of everything. It's about Jesus, not the little differences we have. It's about Jesus, that we're to be a unified body. It was his prayer to the Father that we would be one as they are one so that the world would know that, they, that the Father had sent him. So communion should express the unity that Jesus expects in a body. So communion is humbly remembering, it is powerfully uniting, Third, it is boldly proclaiming. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we do this, we're proclaiming the gospel. And if you think about it, communion acts like a picture just like baptism did. You remember baptism is a picture of the gospel. Jesus 
was crucified. He died and was buried. He rose again to new life. And when I accept him, the old self dies. I am buried in him and I rise to new life when I accept him. And this also is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture. So when we take this, um, and to me it's always sad when the picture is lost. When we take this bread, when he took this bread and he broke it, okay, this is a picture of the gospel, that his body was broken for us, that his body was broken for us. And before he passed that cup, when he took the wine and when he poured it in there and he said, this represents my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, this is picturing the gospel of Jesus' death to save me from my sin. Do you see the picture in all of that? There's a picture in this. It proclaims the gospel. That every time we do communion, what we're saying is, we're agreeing with Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So we're proclaiming Hebrews 9.22 every time we do communion. We're declaring, because there, there are always people in here who don't know Jesus yet, and we're declaring to them, that my relationship with God is based upon his death only, his death alone. And that's why personally, I, when we do this, I always try to make it visual. And I want to tell you something I've done for a long time because this, to me, the picture is so important. That when we do this, I think the breaking of the bread is so important, like, and the dropping of the bread, sorry. That whenever we do this, that even though you'll have in here an itty-bitty piece of bread, that before I eat it, I take it and I break it. That little thing, I will break it because I want to remember that he was broken for my sin. And with this today, it's, it's kind of soft, so you have to tear it, but still, you're breaking it. And then the pouring. Now, I don't pour that. Um, you'd have to pour it in your hand to do that. But as I'm pouring it in my mouth, I'm remembering that his blood was poured. I really encourage you to make it visual every time, because I think the visual is important. So we proclaim the gospel every time we do this, but we're also proclaiming something else. Every time I do communion, every time we do it, we should be proclaiming, Jesus, I'm all in with you. I'm all in with you. You gave everything for me, and I give everything for you. So this should be a proclamation. Not just, I'm just doing this to remember, but this is my way of saying, Jesus, I'm for you, I'm with you, declaring our love for him. And then fourth, it should be, we do it gladly anticipating. Comes from the Gospels, Mark 14, 25. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And in Luke twenty two fifteen, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do this meal with you again until the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so communion not only has this backwards-looking perspective to the cross and what he did for me, it has this forward-looking perspective of, I cannot wait till Jesus comes again as Lord, and he gets to sit and have that meal, not just with his 12, but all of his followers. And it's what is talked about in, Romans 9, in Revelation 19.9, and that thing that we anticipate is that banquet of the wedding supper of the Lamb, that whenever Jesus returns and he does new creation, that we're going to have a wedding supper with him. And at that time, he's going to do this again, and we're going to be there. Isn't that exciting? That we're going to be there. And so there's that sense of anticipation. The Old Testament talked a lot about the Messianic kingdom as a banquet and a great feast, especially Isaiah. Jesus talked about it. In Luke 13, he said, people are going to come from the east, the west, the north, and the south to take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. So it's going to be a feast. So communion not only reminds me of his death for me, but it reminds me that Jesus will come as Lord 
one day, that He will resurrect my body, that He will do and create new creation, that He will ultimately have victory over sin, over Satan, over evil, over death, and that forever I will live with Him on that new creation, and I will enjoy forever intimate table fellowship with Jesus for eternity. And so there's this sense of glad anticipation every time we come to the table. So when we do communion, we are, here's what should be going on. When we come to this table, we should be recommitting to the unity of the body of Christ. We should be remembering His death for our sin, proclaiming the gospel, and rekindling our hope in the future kingdom of God. That's what we should be doing. A little over a year ago, I shared this diagram. And to me, communion links with this. And I know right now it looks really confusing, but I, we live in a culture that has cut itself off from the past. Um, that if anybody's old or what people used to believe, like none of that's true anymore. Everything is new. It's all about novelty. If you've heard the, the phrase that's common among younger generations, if somebody of an older generation speaks, they'll say, okay, boomer, right? In other words, what you say has no relevance, no truth because you're old. Only new things, new ideas, whatever's new in culture is what's important. So our culture has totally cut itself off from the past of anything from the past. But not only that, we live in a culture that's cut itself off from the future because we live in a, in a culture where most people really don't, to them, this world's not going to end well. Climate change, all of that stuff, I mean, whatever it is, think it's going to end badly. And so we live in a culture where people are not rooted in the past anymore, no longer rooted to any hope in the future. And so somebody has said that most modern Americans are living on the Titanic, that they feel like they're on a boat that's left somewhere and you're leaving the past, but there's no hope of the future, so you just eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy your time on the ship as much as possible. And we as a people of God desperately need to be countercultural and reconnect to both the past and the future. And to me, that's what communion does. Communion connects me to the story of Jesus 2,000 years ago. I am anchored in the past with people, millions of people all over the world who were anchored to that same story. And I am anchored to the future of a Jesus who will come back and who will have this feast again in the future. And I'm going to get to sit with him and to have that. And so to me, this communion is so significant. And only when I'm anchored to the past and anchored to the future well can I live in the present well. And so in the present, with me anchored to the past and the future, then I can live in unity with the brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can proclaim the gospel in the present. So I love communion. So here's what we believe at 12th Avenue. This is my summary statement of it all. And I've underlined to me the four purposes. So we believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which believers gather together as a unified body to eat bread which signifies Christ's body given for his people, and to drink from the cup of the Lord, which signifies the new covenant in his blood. We do this in remembrance of his sacrifice, which brought us forgiveness, and thus proclaim his death until he returns. We do this in glad anticipation of the future wedding feast of our Lord and new creation. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That is what is going on with communion. So we have two ordinances, baptism and communion. Baptism is our covenant sign. Communion is our covenant meal. In communion, I'm saying he died for me. In baptism, I'm saying I have accepted his death for me. Communion speaks of his death for us. Baptism speaks of my death with him. Okay, I want to I talk about one more thing that's important. A way I want to frame communion for you for now and the future. And while we're, before we do this, I need to ask a question, because I'm not sure if everybody grabbed one of these when they came in. But 
Uh, that's what was supposed to happen, but it's okay if it didn't. If you didn't ha get one of these, we want you to raise your hand because we need to pass this out to you. So who did not get um, the cup and the bread? If you did not, boldly raise your hand. And we're going to have those... We're going to have those passed out to you. Yep, keep your hands raised if you're needing that. And they're both in there. The, the bread is in the bottom of the two cups. Thank you, guys. These guys are new on our usher team, Samuel and Ian, Brother Samuel and Ian. <laughs> Great job. All right, I want to finish with, uh, um, I want to give you a visual. way to think about communion that's really personal to me. This is a cairn. I've got three up here. I put small ones back on each of the tables. I don't know if you noticed them, but they come from Scotland. In Scotland, you've got the highlands, and anytime you go hike in the highlands, it's easy to lose your way in the trail. If you've been hiking anywhere in mountains, it's easy to lose your way in the trail a lot of times. And so they devised what's called a cairn as a marker to show you how to stay on the trail. Um, it's the little pile of rocks. We were uh, in Colorado with some students and we were doing some hiking and one of our volunteers who was there, who had a boyfriend at the time, uh, she said about halfway through the hike to her, to her boyfriend, she says, it isn't amazing how these little rocks just happen to pile up every <laughs> 50 feet. And he's like, those were actually put there for, on purpose. Those show us the way, it, that was just kind of cute. Um, but these are really important. Uh, every year when we go to Bear Trap, in the summer, the, the, the first mountain we do every day, Sugarloaf, had a pretty easy trail. But in the summer, it was, I mean, in the winter, it was always covered with snow. And it was hard. Even though I knew the way, it was hard for me to find the trail in the snow. And so every time I was on that trail leading students, you know what I would look for? I'd look for the cairns. Because even in the snow, you could see them. And so what you do is you make, your way to the, you make your way to the cairn, and once you get there, you start looking for the next one. And once you see the next one, that's, that's where the trail goes, and you go to the next one, and you follow the cairns all the way to the top. And here's why, to me, like, this is communion. Because all of us, we're on the journey with Jesus, right? Am I the only person that gets off the trail sometimes? loses my way, focuses on the wrong things, miss a turn. Am I the only person? I'm, I'm curious. Anybody else like that here? Anybody else in their walk with Jesus finds that sometimes you, you find yourself off the path? And here's what communion is to me. It's a cairn. It's a way for me when we come to this to be like, right, right, right. That's what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's about the one who gave himself on the cross, who gave everything for me. That's what life's about. That's what I'm to be living for. And it helps get me back on the track, back on the path of what I should be living for, what I should be valuing, what should be important to me. And so that's why communion, every time I come to it, this is what's in my mind. Not just the visual we talked about, but in my mind I'm coming to it. And I'm like, Lord, here's my care. 
and, and that chance to reflect, am I on the path? Am I following you well? Or is there something between me and you right now? And Paul, when he talks about coming to this table, he says that don't do it lightly. In fact, he says everybody ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and they drink the cup because this is not to be taken lightly. This is the death of Jesus, our creator, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute before we take this for us to just reflect and ask the question, am I on the path or is there a sin between you and me? Is there a temptation I keep giving into? Is there something that I'm doing that's dishonoring to you? And, and then to give that to him and to say, I want to reorient myself around you and the cross because this is the center of my life. This is the center of our history. So can we take a minute to do that, to let this communion become a, a cairn in our life today? And so I want to invite you to prayerfully reflect on your own heart, your life before we take the communion. Confess any sin that you need to confess. Make any commitments you need to make. Jesus, we bring to you the sins, the things we're struggling with. If we've gotten off the way or the path, Lord, we confess that to you and help this to be a, a point of remembering and of recommitting to you, of proclaiming to ourselves the gospel again, of anticipating the future, of committing again to this body and the family here. And we just want to walk with you well. And so thank you for this table that you gave us that can function that way in our life. So we want, to, we want you to be famous in all things. We want you to be the center of everything for us. And I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord and 12th is not your home church, that's okay. We invite you to take this with us because um, this is for the whole family of God. So we're told in Luke that they left. They found the things just as Jesus told them. They prepared the Passover. And that when the hour came, and they were reclining at the table that Jesus said to them, I've eagerly desired, I have so eagerly desired to eat this Passover. Because he was going to re-envision it, okay? I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it says, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, this is my body broken from you. And he said, take, do this in remembrance of me, take And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said, take and drink, and they all drank. Hey, would you all stand with me? We want to end in worship. To Jesus our Lord.
Do you not agree that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all? So, Lord Jesus, we come to you today being reminded of the most important thing in the universe, which is you and your life and your death, burial, and resurrection for us to bring us back into relationship. So we're reminded again that we are to be people who follow you on your way. And so forgive us for the ways we stray. Forgive us for how we get off the trail, how we lose focus on you, how other things grab our attention. We want to follow you well. We want you to be famous. And we know that the sacrifice you gave, it demands my soul and my life and my all, and I gladly give it. So thank you for this table, this meal of remembrance that you've given us, how visual it is. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12. So in light of that, you are sent to follow your Lord and Savior with your whole heart and life. Amen.